If we haven't met before, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here at, uh, at Christ Central, and I haven't been up here in a bit, uh, but as Tim Nogler just told me, I'm back in the saddle. <laughs> so here we go. So before we, uh, before we jump in our text this morning, I just want to take a minute and just uh, thank you guys as a church for your prayers and your support over the last uh, little bit. Uh, with the birth of, of Caden, our sixth child, and some sickness, along with just the cares of everyday life, uh, the last few months have been uh, a little difficult for us, and, uh, but through it all we felt very cared for and loved and supported from our life group, from uh, the fuel team taking over things while I wasn't there, uh, from the elders uh, carrying things, people dropping off meals, uh, the, whole, the whole thing. And can I just say that uh, we were very blessed for two weeks straight uh, of having meals, and if there was ever like some sort of citywide church potluck competition, I think everyone else is just playing for second, because you guys are amazing. Uh, the meals that we had were just, whew, you know? You know, in the Old Testament, there's the verse where it says like the the Spirit of the Lord was on this guy for fine craftsmanship. I think the Spirit of the Lord is on Michelle for fine stew making. <laughs> she has been anointed with the presence of the Lord for making good stew. It's just amazing. Uh, some of you even helped with our laundry. I mean, like, pick up, take to their house, wash, dry, fold, bring back laundry. And uh, with eight people in our house, one of my hopes for heaven is that there'll be no more laundry. <laughs> and so that was an amazing blessing uh, for us, uh, along with no more pain and no more death. I'm just praying those dazzling clothes of white never need to be washed, right? And so that was an amazing blessing for us, and uh, you guys are amazing, and Karen and I truly are very thankful for you all, and it's good to be in a family. It's good to be in a family like this one. I'll say that, all right? So why don't we pray, and then, uh, and then we'll jump in. So Father, uh, we are very thankful for family. We're very thankful that we can be joined together, and it's all because of Jesus and what he's done. It's all because of your spirit of unity uniting us together. We're so thankful for the privilege and the freedom that we get to gather here this morning and not just gather to each other, but to gather to you, gather to your presence. And so we fix our eyes on you now, and we just ask that you would come and uh, by your spirit, you would work through your word and uh, you'd bring much needed encouragement. You'd bring much needed faith. You'd bring much needed strength uh, for us this morning. We pray, Father, that you do a great work this morning in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the picture to my right is of the Victoria Cross. Uh, the Victoria Cross is the highest recognition for military valor in uh, a Canadian soldier can receive. Uh, the Canadian Victoria Cross is cast from the bronze of cannons captured from the Russians during the Crimean War, donated by Queen Elizabeth II, as well as medal from the 1967 Confederation Medal and from each of Canada's regions. The medal consists of a crimson ribbon at the top, a straight bar decorated with laurel leaves, 
and a cross suspended by a link of the letter V. On the cross is a lion standing upon the royal crown, and below the crown a scroll bearing the inscription, Pro Valor, for valor. On the reverse, the date of the act for which the decoration is bestowed is engraved in a raised circle along with the rank, name, and unit of the recipient. And Canada states the criteria for the honor as follows. The Victoria Cross shall be awarded for the most conspicuous bravery, a daring or preeminent act of valor or self-sacrifice or extreme devotion to duty in the presence of the enemy. The Victoria Cross shall be awarded for the most conspicuous bravery, a daring or preeminent act of valor or self-sacrifice or extreme devotion to duty in the presence of the enemy. The Canadian Victoria Cross was created in 1993, and as of yet, no one has been awarded the honor. Before the Canadian version was created, 99 Canadians have received the British Commonwealth's Victoria Cross. One of those 99 recipients was John Weir Foote. And we have his picture. There he is. Foote is an honorary, was an honorary captain attached to the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, and he joined the Canadian Chaplain Service three months after the war's outbreak in September 1939. He was sent overseas with the regiment in June 1940. Uh, it says he was tall and rugged for a minister. I don't know what that means. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. For a minister. Wouldn't it just be enough to say he was tall and rugged? Anyway, that's fine. He was tall and rugged for a minister, having worked in an iron ore smelter on a geological survey and as a prairie farm laborer. They were extraordinarily good preparation for the ministry, Foote said. He joined the ministry at the age of 30 after graduating from the Presbyterian College in Montreal, and the church had been a part of his life ever since he was a boy, growing up north of Belleville, where he played the organ in St. Peter's Presbyterian Church. In England, Foote somehow learned that his regiment's training exercises were not part of the usual routine. He approached his commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Labatt, and asked to accompany the troops on their still-secret mission. Labatt tried to dissuade him, but Foote, he said, insisted, arguing, the best you can do is arrest me afterwards, so you might as well just make use of me. <laughs> Labatt made Foote a stretcher-bearer, and he would have an appalling amount of work. Early on the morning of August 19, 1942, the Dieppe-bound convoy ran into some German patrol ships, which alerted Coastal Defense Unit. It meant the raid's element of surprise had already been lost, as Foote joined the frontal assault on the port at 5.40 a.m. The invasion force did not have sufficient air or naval support to overcome the withering machine gun and mortar fire from hidden positions on the surrounding cliffs. To make matters worse, many of the tanks that were supposed to provide cover and support became bogged down on Dieppe's rocky beaches and were easy targets for German guns. Communications broke down early, and reinforcements units poured onto the beach, complicating the withdrawal and compounding the disaster. Through eight hours of the unfolding nightmare, Foote worked tirelessly to bring aid to the wounded, time and again leaving his shelter to inject morphine, give first aid, and carry wounded personnel from the open beach 
to the regimental aid post. The official citation for his Victoria Cross reads, on these occasions, with utter disregard for his personal safety, Honorary Captain Foote exposed himself to an inferno of fire and saved many lives by his gallant efforts. On several occasions, this officer had the opportunity to embark, but returned to the beach as his chief concern was the care and evacuation of the wounded. He refused a final opportunity to leave the shore, choosing to suffer the fate of the men he had ministered to for over three years. Of that decision, he would later say, it seemed to me that the men ashore would need me far more in captivity than any of those going home. Foote would spend the next 34 months in German POW camps where he ministered to thousands of Allied prisoners. He was liberated by the British in April 1945. The following year when he learned that he had been awarded the Victoria Cross, he told reporters, you can't be a padre and not go where the troops go. That's all I did. Foote is the only Canadian chaplain to be awarded the Victoria Cross. When we hear a story like that of John Foote's, it moves us, it grips us, but it also makes us come face to face with one of life's big questions, which is how do you handle fear? Or how do you get courage like that in your own life? How do we handle fear? How do we handle fear? Now the world's main answer to that question, how can you have courage, is self-esteem. It's to visualize victory. It's to banish all fear. Look at yourself, tell yourself you can do it, banish all fear. You can do it. You can do it. You are powerful. You are strong. You are invincible. And so the world says you build up your self-esteem. You remove all fear from your life. You have nothing to fear. And that's how you are courageous. The problem with the you're awesome and you have nothing to fear approach to courage is that it is out of touch with reality. The reality is you do have weaknesses and there's much to be afraid of. There's much to be afraid of. If someone is struggling with anxiety or worry or even paranoia, it's no good to just tell them you have nothing to fear because there are some legit things to be afraid of in this world. So often the world thinks of courage just in, in short bursts courage to run around in the midst of gunfire in World War II like John Foote, courage to run into a burning building to save somebody. And while it's true that that adrenaline pump mixed with telling yourself you can do it can bring a burst of courage, what about the long haul? What about the long haul? What about the courage to face something day in and day out for years and years and years? That's really what we're talking about when we talk about Christian courage. When we talk about courage for the Christian life. It's courage for the long haul. And maybe it includes those bursts of courage at times, but really 
Christian courage is the willingness to say and do the right thing regardless of the earthly costs. Tim Keller said that courage is facing your heart's greatest nightmare and doing the right thing anyway. Courage is facing your heart's greatest nightmare and doing the right thing anyway. Maybe your heart's greatest nightmare is rejection. Maybe your heart's greatest nightmare is ridicule. Maybe it's poverty. Whatever it might be, courage is coming face to face with it and doing the right thing anyway. Far from being just a momentary heroic act, courage for the Christian is woven into every area of our daily life. Every facet of our walk with God involves courage. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis says this, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. A chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. Pilate was merciful till it became risky. Pilate was merciful till it became risky. So we need a long-lasting, deep-seated courage. We need a long-lasting, deep-seated courage. If courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, we need a deep-seated, long-lasting courage that doesn't just come from an adrenaline boost and doesn't just come from standing in front of the mirror and pumping up our self-esteem. It doesn't come from visualizing success and trying to banish all fear. To have that type of deep-seated, long-lasting courage, we need something more than just our reflection in a mirror and a good pump-up song in the background. Right? Because as a church, we have plenty of things to be afraid of. We have plenty of things to be afraid of. We have lots to fear. Transition brings fear. Change brings fear. Uncertainty brings fear. Opposition brings fear. Suffering brings fear. Our finances can bring fear. Failure can bring fear. I tried sharing my gospel, the gospel with my coworker. It was a disaster. I'm so afraid to ever do that. Again, failure can bring a real fear. Why do we think over and over and over in the Bible it says, do not be afraid, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. Why does it say that over and over and over and over again? Because there's things to be afraid of, right? When my son and I are going to St. Mary's supermarket, I do not grab him by the shoulders before we go in and say, Nathaniel, fear not. Don't be afraid. I don't do that. Why? Because we're going in to buy milk and there's nothing to be afraid of, right? You say, fear not. Don't be afraid when you're about to enter a situation where there are plenty of things for you to be afraid of. And so the Bible says over and over and over again, fear not, implying there are going to be a bunch of things that will tempt you to fear and to run away. But in light of all of it, our desire should be 
to be a courageous church. There should be something in our heart that wants nothing to do with no part of a church that is merciful as long as it's not risky. We should loathe the thought of being a church that is loving as long as it's safe. We don't want to be a church that yields and shrinks back at the first sign of danger or a church that never moves forward because where we are is comfortable. Where is the life in that? Where is the life in that? A church that is ruled by fear is a church that's filled with death. We want to be a courageous church. Courage that as a church we can face our heart's greatest nightmare and do the right thing anyway. Courage to say or do the right thing no matter what the earthly cost to us. So where do we get a courage like that? Where is the source of that type of true courage? We know that that type of deep-seated, long-lasting courage that affects every area of our life, we know it's not going to come by us standing in front of a mirror and saying, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, while Eye of the Tiger is playing in the background. It's not going to happen. And so where do we find the source for that courage? Well, why don't we turn to Joshua chapter 1. And the first nine verses of Joshua chapter 1, which is probably the greatest text on courage in the whole Bible. And so I'll read it through, and then hopefully we'll see three foundations for that type of courage that we need. All right? Three types of, three foundations that bring that type of courage. All right? Joshua chapter 1, and reading the first nine verses. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land I am giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever 
you go. I think you might see just from reading those first nine verses that what I'm about to say has already been preached this morning, but that's a good thing. From John's word to other things, uh, the reminder of God's presence, uh, the reminder that he's with us, and so it's always good when you stand up to preach and the structure's already been built and you just got to do some sheathing and, and bring it in. So that's good. God's been speaking. And so just like he repeats himself here in these first nine verses over and over and over, I think he's been doing that this morning as well. And so let's unpack this a bit. Joshua 1, 1 to 9. So the Israelites stand at the edge of the Jordan River on the edge of the land God had promised to them so many years before when they were slaves in Egypt. Moses, their longtime leader, has just died. His successor has been named Joshua, the son of Nun. The son of Nun, not N-O-N-E, and not the son of a nun, but Joshua, the son of Nun. Since his youth, Joshua had served as Moses' assistant. He was the general of the Israelite army, uh, defeating Amalek. He was the only one who went with Moses up the mountain to meet with God. He was one of the two spies who gave a faith-filled report back to Moses after spying out the promised land. And at the end of his life, Moses had laid hands on Joshua, and it says that Joshua was filled with the spirit of wisdom. But Joshua did all these things with Moses by his side. He did all these things in the company of Moses, the great leader of Israel, with Moses' leadership, with Moses' input, with Moses' encouragement. But Moses stopped doing all those things a few days ago, mainly because he's dead. And Joshua now is by himself. And so here is Joshua standing on the banks of the Jordan River, looking over at the promised land in front of him, and face to face with the reality that his mentor his leader, his friend, Moses, is dead. And the weight of responsibility and leadership now rests upon him. He's in the midst of transition. He's in the midst of uncertainty. Opposition lays in front of him. He has plenty of things to fear. And God knows what he needs in that moment. He needs courage. God comes to Joshua and says, Moses is dead, Joshua. Let's go. I just appreciate kind of the bluntness and the frankness of God in that verse where you just picture yourself, Joshua, in that situation and Moses is gone and he's been your friend for years and he's been your mentor and, he's, and, your, and your leader and it just says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, let's go, right? There's not a great eulogy here. He's just, Moses is dead. Let's go, Joshua. And so the first thing we see, that courage is rooted in the purposes of God. The first foundation for our courage is God's purposes for our life. Moses' death doesn't bring confusion or hesitation on God's part. When Moses dies, before the Israelites cross the Jordan, God isn't in heaven saying, Oh boys, I was really hoping that Moses was going to see this through. Oh, Moses, why couldn't you have just hung on for a few more days, a few more years, and we could have seen this through, right? He's not up there wringing his hands, 
perplexed about what's going to happen next. Moses, I told you you should have cut out the carbs or something like that, right? No, it's next man up mentality for God. Moses has died, but there's still work to be done. And so God gives Joshua his assignment. Joshua, Moses is dead. Here's what I want you to do. And he reveals his purposes and plans for Joshua. Get up, go over, and get the land I am giving you. And this is the starting point for our courage because there is no courage apart from mission. You're not just courageous to be courageous. You are courageous for something. John Foote was courageous because he knew what he was called to do. He knew his mission. He knew the purpose for which he was there on the beaches of Dieppe. He wasn't just courageous to be courageous. He was courageous for something. He was courageous for the task he was assigned to do. And when we understand what God has called us to do, we can have courage to carry it out. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God has some good works planned for you. God has some good works planned for you. He planned them out a long time ago, and now today He wants you to step out in courageous obedience and do those good works. And so these can be general things that apply to all followers of Christ across the board. We can see clearly that God has called us to love our neighbor. So because of that confidence, we can courageously love our neighbor. But it can also be more specific. A good example is for us as a church, we feel strongly that God has called us to plant 12 uh, churches in 12 cities and towns in Atlantic Canada with university and colleges. And we carry that call from God. It wasn't something we set out to do. It's not something we sat down and strategically drew up uh, best practices to advance God's kingdom. We were in a prayer meeting. We felt God speak. Our hearts were stirred. And so God's purposes and plans for us as a church can give us courage to move forward in that, to use Ephesians 2.10, we feel that one of the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in is to plant churches. So that gives us courage in the face of adversity. It gives us courage in the midst of uncertainty. How in the world are we going to see a church planted in Church Point, Nova Scotia? It's uncertain, but we feel the call of God, and that gives us courage to keep pressing forward. Maybe for you, you're dealing with sickness, you're dealing with illness. In James 1, we see that God's call on your life is to have joy in the midst of suffering, to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And so you can have courage to live that out because it's God who's called you to do it. You didn't go to chapters and pick up a book and it says be joyful in your suffering because there's no... There's no power behind that. But when it's God who's called you to do it, then there's a courage that comes from that. This is God who's called me. I can have joy in the midst of my suffering, not because all he told me to, not because I read it in a book, not because I saw it on Oprah, but because God has called me to have joy in my suffering. And it's the call of God that brings the courage 
to carry out what he has called you to. So what are the things that God has prepared for you to do? For some of you, you're not sure. You've had a few things rattle around, a few things stir your heart. When did you last take a good long look at God's call on your life? When is the last time you sought God and just said, God, how do you want me to be used for your kingdom purposes? What purposes do you have for me, God? What good works have you prepared for me? For others, I expect you know what God has called you to do. And if I asked you to write it on a piece of paper, you could just scratch it right down. And it's easy for you because you're walking in it. And you know that. You know what God has called you to do because it's right on the front burner. You're living it out. And still others might know what God has called them to, but for whatever reason, you've yet to act on it. You have yet to begin to walk in those good works. Maybe a long time ago, you felt God's call on your life, but you reasoned it away. You buried it. My prayer is that this morning you start to feel God's shovel begin to pierce the earth and begin to unearth that call on your life. That burden that you had on your heart maybe 5, 10, 20 years ago, maybe hesitancy or confusion, just kind of kept it buried, kept it on the back burner. God has a call in your life. God has purposes for you to walk in. The church needs men and women who have a clarity about them. This is what God has called me to do. And we walk courageously in that. So we see that God's purpose is for us. You could say God's plan. You could say God's call. You'll see why I didn't use call, because this doesn't start with P, right? <laughs> You'll see that as we go. God's purposes for us bring courage. God says to Joshua, Moses is dead. Get up, go over the river, and get the land that I'm giving you. Second, we see that our courage is rooted in God's presence. We have a foundation of God's purposes for our lives. We have a foundation of God's presence with us. Look at what God says to Joshua in verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And again in verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. We have a foundation of our courage that's rooted in God's presence with us. This is the encouragement that God gave Jeremiah as he began his prophetic ministry. Do not be afraid of them, Jeremiah, for I am with you to deliver you declares the Lord. It's where David's confidence was when he faced off against Goliath that the Lord of hosts was with him. It's the encouragement that God gives to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 41. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Over and over and over in the Bible, the answer to our fear always comes back 
to God's presence with us. Sometimes in the face of hardships, someone can try to comfort us by using the, the kind of old Christian cliche, don't worry, God will never give you more than you can handle. Have you heard that before? God will never give you more than you can handle. And although it kind of sounds nice, the Bible takes a slightly different approach to comfort us in the midst of hardship. Because the good news of the Bible is not that God won't give us more than we can handle. It's that He won't give us more than He can handle. And He's with us. And He's with us. When William Carey felt the call of God to bring the gospel to India, he had every single imaginable hardship that you could think of. In a very short time after arriving there, his friend and ministry partner deserted him. He contracted malaria. His five-year-old son died of dysentery. It all became too much for his wife, Dorothy, whose mental health deteriorated rapidly. She suffered delusions. She accused Carrie of adultery. She threatened him with a knife and eventually had to be confined to a room and physically restrained. And so can you imagine in the midst of that situation, you walking into William Carey as he sit alone in his room and say, don't worry, Will, God won't give you more than you can handle. Cheer up, Will. God's not going to give you more than you can handle. Are you kidding? The only comfort, the only source of courage in that moment for William Carey is that God was with him. Is that God was with him. He wrote in his journal, This indeed is the valley of the shadow of death to me, but I rejoice that I am here notwithstanding, and God is here. I am in a strange land. I have no Christian friend, a large family, and nothing to supply their wants, but I have God, and his word is sure. God did give William Carey more than he could handle, but he didn't give him more than God could handle, and God was with him. God never calls us to do anything apart from himself. He is with us, and as a new covenant believer, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, that same Holy Spirit that filled Peter and the disciples in Acts 4 and enabled them to speak the word with boldness, enabled them to speak the word with courage. Christ Central Church, God is with us. God did not call Joshua and leave him high and dry, and God did not call us and leave us high and dry. He is with us. He is with us. Keith and Sue, I just felt that there are times when you are driving home from Monday nights and you feel that God has called you to something that is beyond you. God has called you to something that is more than you can handle. And you need to know this morning that He has. That He has called you to something that is more than you can handle, but He is with you. And I think <clears throat> God wants you to just answer the question of, what would you rather have, a call on your life that because of your experiences and your talents and your gifts, 
is just easily able to handle for you. You're just able to walk through it and God just leaves you alone to get on with it? Or would you rather have a call in your life that's beyond you, but he's with you? I think you know the answer, and I know what your answer is. He is with you. Maybe some of you see the call God has on your life, and you think, I can't bear that burden. That burden is too much. And Paul was in a similar spot in 2 Corinthians 1, and he said, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so the call on our lives is for the benefit of those around us. But even in the burden of the call, God is working something in us and enabling us to rely more on him. He's building in more trust in himself. He's working in more of a reliance on him. He's using the difficulty of the call to remind us of his presence with us. So as a church, we have plenty of opportunity to be afraid. We have plenty of opportunity to shrink back. But grabbing hold of the truth that God is with us changes our perspective on our circumstances. We see this in 2 Chronicles 32 when Hezekiah tells his soldiers, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there, they are, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And so you might have a call of God on your life and you look out and it looks daunting, it looks overwhelming, it's an arm of flesh. And you have the Lord your God with you. The presence of God is the foundation for our courage. That changes everything. If Hezekiah doesn't have that promise of the presence of God with him, it is overwhelming. It is daunting. And he has every reason to see it that way and to run away. But it's the fact that God is with him. It changes his perspective on the whole situation. And this army before him that he can't even count he says it's just an arm of flesh because i've got god on my side so we have a foundation of the purposes of god we have a foundation of the presence of god and lastly our courage is rooted in the promises of god our courage is rooted in the promises of God. Look at verse 7. He says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do, all, careful to do according to all that is written in it. And so on the brink of entering a season of battle and conquest, you think that God would sit down with Joshua, he'd unroll a big map of the promised land, 
have those little figures and the sticks that you always see in movies that I don't really know what they're doing, but they're pushing it around the map and making strategies, but he doesn't do that. He says, Joshua, get your face in this book so that you can be courageous and strong. Stay focused right there. Don't drift to the left or to the right. He says, this book shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, you need to speak it. You need to proclaim it. Don't just keep it to yourself. Make it a part of your conversation. The reason you can do that is because you have stored it up in your heart. You've meditated on it day and night. You've chewed on it. You've savored it. But don't stop there, Joshua. You need to obey it. You need to do all that is written in it. We talked about this Friday night at Fuel. We talked about how when we come to a set of traffic lights, we look up and we observe that the light is red. So we read the word, we observe what it says. We interpret that that red light means that we need to stop, right? We interpret it in that context. There's a red light. It's hanging above an intersection. It tells me that I need to stop. But do we stop there, Jared? No, we have another step that we need to do. If all we do is look at the red light, we interpret that it means stop. We will go through the intersection. Noah was driving a bus the other way. He T-bones us and wipes us out, right? We need to do what it says. We need to put our foot on the brake and come to a stop. We're just cementing in some things with fuel on Friday night, all right? So he tells Joshua, proclaim it, store it up in your heart, meditate on it, but don't stop there. You've got to do what it says. You need to obey it. So in order to have the courage to enter the promised land, take on his enemies, God wants Joshua in his word. He wants his word in Joshua. He wants Joshua to meditate on his promises. And all through the rest of the book, we see Joshua have that confidence in God's promises and the courage that it gives him. In Joshua 23, he says to the Israelites, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. He knew and had confidence in the powerful promises of God. And it's the same for us today. So maybe God has called you to something and you feel out of your depth. Maybe you don't have great leadership ability and you think, how am I going to have the courage to see this through? And God says, don't forget my promises. Don't forget my promises. Promises like Psalm 138, 3. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. Promises like Proverbs 28, 1. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Oh God, I've been forgiven. I've been redeemed. I've been made righteous. My greatest enemy of sin and death They've already been defeated. Let that fuel my courage. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Kids Club, Christ Central Kids, Fuel Team. When you feel you're lacking in courage to keep going on, Galatians 6, 9, there's a promise that says, let us not grow weary of doing good, 
for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We need the promises of God. Because when you get in this book, when you get in this book, you meditate on this book, you meet Jesus. And the greatest promise of God to us is Himself in Jesus Christ. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, In Jesus, all the promises of God are yes. Jesus completed the most courageous rescue mission in history. We see a king who leaves his throne, who travels to a faraway land in order to proclaim liberty to those in captivity, to bring healing to the wounded, to set free the oppressed, and he does it by giving his own life, only to rise from the dead, defeating even death itself. And then he promises to one day return and establish his kingdom of never-ending peace and all the fears that we have now will be wiped away forever. If anybody fulfills the description of the Victoria Cross, it was Jesus. For the most conspicuous bravery, a daring or preeminent act of valor or self-sacrifice or extreme devotion to duty, in the presence of the enemy. And that's a freeing thing. Because I tell you what, we can know God's promises for our lives. We can know God's presence in our lives. We can know God's promises over our lives. And guess what? We can still act out of fear. We still have times when we shrink back in the face of opposition. We still have moments of looking out for ourselves. We'll have moments when we say, every man for himself, where's the quickest boat out of here? We can't always hold on to that courage. But in those moments, we can be thankful that Jesus is our true champion and he holds on to you and me. And he holds on to you and me. And as we fix our eyes on him and rest in his grace and in his power, it only works to make us more courageous. Jesus is the true champion. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the one with true courage. We're not always going to act courageously. I wish it was true. Personally, there are going to be moments when we act out of fear. As a church, there are going to be moments when we make decisions out of fear because we're not perfect people. And no matter how much we know God's call on our lives, no matter how much we know His purposes, no matter how much we know His presence in our lives, no matter how much we know the promises that we have, there are still going to be times when we're afraid and we act out of that fear and we're anything but courageous. We can't always hold on to it, but Jesus is holding on to us. And it's that grace that only works to make us more courageous. Be strong and courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, Christ Central Church, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the plans and the purpose that you have for us. We're so thankful that you have 
good works that you've planned beforehand that we should walk in them. And even knowing that it's you that's called us, we get a courage from that. We're so thankful you don't leave us there. You don't call us to something away from yourself. You call us to something that you're very much with us in. You're beside us. We have the great promise of your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, giving us that boldness and that courage to speak up and to stand up no matter what the earthly cost might be to us, to look our greatest nightmare in the eye and still do the right thing anyway. And we have your promises. We have so many promises in your word that just fuel that courage, the greatest of which is the promise of yourself to us in Jesus. And we fix our eyes on him. He's our true champion. He's the courageous one. We just thank you for your grace on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.